Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. Speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Selecki, and this week we have Rory O'Neill. Pit Pass Moto is sponsored by Moto America. Moto America, home of the AMA Superbike Championship featuring 190 mile per hour superbikes and is the official sponsor of Pit Pass Moto. Follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Did you know Moto America airs around the world on networks like Eurosport, live racing to over 50 countries around the world, and Fox Sports Asia and Star Sports China, live superbike racing up to 16 countries in Asia. They're also on Supersport Africa, airing Moto America Rewind in 19 sub-Saharan countries in Africa. Definitely worldwide viewership, exceeded over 7 million already this year. Their numbers are way up, folks. You gotta check them out. It's just outstanding coverage. Coming up in Moto America, we've got round eight at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, October 9th through 11th. You can get tickets and info at motoamerica.com. Round nine, which is a round without fans, unfortunately, at Laguna Seca, which is October 23rd through 25th. And this round features the drag specialties, King of the Baggers and Vintage Racers in the Heritage Cup. And I really can't wait to see that, watch those baggers go around the road race track, especially a facility like Laguna Seca. All day racing with five classes includes superbikes, superstock, stock 1000, twins cup, and junior cup. And if you can't make it in person, there's many ways to watch. You can go to Moto America Live, which features all day live streaming starting on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, plus video on demand. Live Hono Superbikes airs on Fox Sports Saturday and Sunday, and Live Super Sport Class airs on MAV TV Saturday and Sunday. Then in the days after the race, you can always catch up with Moto America on Moto America Rewind, watch the Junior Cup Class on Fox Sports 2, plus get the backstory and technology and insights, interviews, Pretty much everything you want on Moto America on NBCSN. Of course, check your local listings or MotoAmerica.com. And now here's the latest news in the industry. We have race results from Moto America at Barber Motorsports Park, Birmingham, Alabama from this last weekend. Tell you it was the weekend of the doubles. In Superbike, Cameron Bobier continues his domination. He's just really on fire this year, folks. He won both races, race one and race two followed also by Jake Gagne on his Yamaha in second place. And we had a little change up. Third on the podium in race one was Matthew Skoltz. And in race two, it was Bobby Fong, friend of the show on his Suzuki. But the points are really tightening up here. We've got Cameron Bobier with 325, but second place is where it's really tight. Jake Gagne with 222 to Matthew Skoltz, 221. So you got a battle there for third place playing out this season. In stock 1000, Cam Peterson, Continues his domination. Absolutely wins both race one and race two in Supersport Racing. 
Richie Escalante and his Kawasaki won both race one and race two. Absolutely a dominant weekend for him. In Twins Cup racing, in the Liquamali Junior Cup race, it was Rocco Landers. That young man has been on fire. He won all four races this weekend. So good job on you there, Rocco. We love to see it. And uh, he's dominating the points in both classes. So we're going to see that continue on as the season bears through. Results from AMA Motocross at Spring Creek this last weekend, Millville, Minnesota, which was last Saturday. In the 450 class, big surprise, Adam Ciancerillo continues what he did last weekend, and he goes 1-1. He's a rookie in the 450 outdoor class. It was great to see. And it's not the Kawasaki a lot of people expected to see out front. The defending champ, Eli Tomac, struggled again. He got fifth overall this week. Second in the 450 class was Blake Baggin on his KTM with a 2-2, followed by Justin Barsha on his Yamaha with a 5-4. So really got a mix up in the points. The points leader, Zach Osborne, really lost some points to his competition, and it's starting to tighten up, and we're looking for a battle. Zach is sitting in first with red plate at 235 points, followed by Adam Ciancerillo, who closed the gap down to 15 with 220 points. And third is Marvin Muscan with 215 points, who's 20 points down. So Eli's not completely impossibly out of it, but he's down 39 points with three rounds left. It's unlikely he's going to close that gap, but really interesting that the other Kawasaki bike is making a run for it. So we're going to see a battle all the way to the finish with Ciancerolo on a roll and Osborne struggling maybe a little bit on his results. Uh, you never know. It may close the gap. So in the 250 class, Dylan Ferrandis swept the moto. And what was interesting about that, him going 1-1 at Jeremy Martin and Alex Martin's home track. These two boys grew up racing there and Dylan beat both of them. Jeremy Martin finished out second with a 5-2 and his brother Alex a 4-4. No surprise that the Martin brothers were on the podium at their home track, but that really tightened up the points. Actually, Dylan Frandis is now the red plate holder. He's taken over first with 257 points to Jeremy Martin's 254 points. So he's three points down. R.J. Hampshire sits in third with 202 points. He's 55 points down. So that top two in the 250 class is really turning into a barn burner. I'm really looking forward to see these last three rounds. Dylan's riding really well. Racing results from World Superbike in Barcelona, Spain. We had race one, Jonathan Ray, the UK rider on his Kawasaki, got first overall, followed by Scott Redding, also from the UK on his Ducati. And Chaz Davies, also another British rider, third overall in his Ducati. And then in race two, Chad Davies wins the overall on his Ducati, followed by Michael Vandermark, the uh, Dutch rider on his Yamaha. And third, this is a great news, Garrett Gerloff, USA rider, third overall in race two on his Yamaha. So this is the way the points sit at this point in the season. Jonathan Ray's in first with 290, followed by Scott Redding in second with 239, and Chaz Davies third with 188. So that's your World Superbike results. Race results from MotoGP in Romagna GP. This is uh, difficult to pronounce, but fun to report on. First overall in uh, MotoGP was Maverick Vinales, the Spanish rider on his Yamaha. First overall, followed by Johan Mir, Spanish rider on his Suzuki. And Paul Esperargo, a Spanish rider also on his KTM for third overall. So those three guys are kind of out of the points at this point in time, but Andrew Dovizioso, the Italian rider, sits first overall. He's the red plate holder with 84 points, followed by Fabio Quartararo, the French rider, is second with 83 points, who's tied 
with Maverick Vinales, the Spanish rider who's third with 83 points also. Great racing in MotoGP. I hope you get out to check it out. This week's Pit Pass trivia question is, an avid motorcycle enthusiast, he was known to own many motorcycles over his lifetime. What was Elvis Presley's last motorcycle? That answer coming up later. We will be right back with our guest, Rory O'Neill. So our guest today is Rory O'Neill. This guy, product rep for Bridgestone Motorcycle Tires and also the owner of Team International Air Hammer, which is a uh, organization that races at the Vet Motocross of Nations held at Farley Castle in the UK every year. And I think Rory, you may have pushed, promoted and sold more YZ490s than Brock Glover. Yeah, it's a problem because now we can't buy them cheap anymore. <laughs> you guys have... Uh, through your activity of getting people interested in that bike have probably driven the price through the ceiling. Yeah, they've definitely gone up. I think too, like CR 500 prices and KX 500 prices have gotten a bit out of hand. And I think people have realized that like maybe weren't YZ 490 people before realized like these things are a little bit cheaper. Maybe we'll give them a go. And I think myself and Paul, Paul is a co-owner of the team. So it's not just me. It's, it's Paul as well. He does a lot to promote 490s as well and does a lot of work on them. And you, we're seeing more and more of them at the track. And like I said, they're they're not as cheap as they used to be. So we used to find them for like 300 bucks all day long. Now, let me ask you, I mean, obviously you're a motorcycle nut like myself, and I know you own two or three bikes. <laughs> yeah. The YZ490, I think when you started that whole push and that, that became the bike you went after, they were cheap and everywhere. Vintage racing in general seems to be it's a low buy-in to get into the vehicle at first, and then you do the restoration and you spend three times the value of the vehicle to restore it. And then you go race, race it. But at that time, the prices were really low. And do you see that as a trend overall in vintage racing? Is prices going up? Honestly, with this COVID thing, it seems like it's a seller's market right now. It seems like anybody I know that's selling a bike is selling them for prime money. And they're selling them fast, too, which is bizarre. But, you know, it has gone in trends over the year. There's been certain bikes which were always expensive, like Mako's were always expensive. You're never going to find a cheap Mako and things have crept up there. I think in Europe and in, in England, like when we do Farley and stuff, the Evo thing was huge, which Evo is up to 89. So slowly here, you, we saw like bikes up to around 89 were kind of in that weird spot where they were too new to be vintage, but too old to be kind of new. So they were in this no man's land where you could buy them cheap, but that's changing now too. So it's changed a long time ago in England. And I think there was a lot of guys coming over from Europe and filling container loads of cheap Evo bikes and then shipping them back. So that kind of helped drive prices up a bit too, but it's still a lot cheaper than paying 10 grand for a new bike, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. The buy-in for the beginning racer rider is pretty high, that threshold, but uh, vintage racing is a good alternative. I always wondered, and I think you and I may have talked about this at one point in time, which is what's the next wave of vintage era motocross bikes when does the chart move up 10 years to where now it's 90 to 2000 bikes to where that's the one that everybody focus on and I'm, I'm always wondering what point in time is it does it have to be 40 years does it have to be 30 years you think i don't know because like right now for us with the farley thing a couple of years ago i want to say it was two years ago they shifted you know for the team race which is what we do 
they shifted the rules to Super Evo. And Super Evo there is everything up to 96. So I think the cutoff for, for them was, you know, aluminum frames, obviously the YZ400, four strokes, that kind of stuff. So there is a kind of definitive line there. So it's already kind of shifted onto the next thing, you know. And Unadilla and that, they run pre-millennium class, which is everything up to 99. And I see Arma have added next-gen class over the last year or two as well, which is not sure what way the Arma rule is. I think it's up to 98, but it could be. I've seen newer bikes out there, but I don't know if it's a case of they're within the rules or if you show up with a bike, they're just going to put you in a class because some series are good like that. They're not going to refuse anybody. But um, the serious one, yeah, they definitely seem to have shifted up to close closer to 2000. So I'm sure at some point it's going to have to change to where they're going to have to have aluminum frames in there and, you know, four-stroke motors and that. But, I mean, you think about it now, the first aluminum frame bike was the 97 CR 250, and it's 23 years old now. So another couple of years, it's going to be a quarter of a century old, which is wild when you think about it. But, you know, it is a vintage bike, really. And I remember when that bike came out, that was, you know, everybody just went googly eye over it, and then they rode it. (laughs) (laughs) They discovered, uh, well, maybe this isn't better. (laughs) My first brand new bike ever was a 98 CR 250, and I was so stoked. And I went out to the track on it that day, and I just wanted to cry. I'm like, what have I done? I've spent all this (laughs) money on it. so hard to ride i'm completely destroyed (laughs) it was one of those things that i think the science or the technology wasn't quite ready yet and uh i'm glad that eventually the science and technology caught up to where aluminum frames are are much better than they used to be but they had to make them give a little bit and then the other end of the spectrum you have the yz490 which is somewhat of a flexible frame compared to that cr250 the later ones like the one that you guys had, like the 90 or whatever, like so 86 to 90, they're pretty much the same. There's little changes in there, but they look the same. Those frames are a lot better. Like I ride an 83 a lot and you can feel it flex. Like when you do certain things, <laughs> sometimes if you do something wrong, you can hear it too, you know, and they'll snap like head stay bolts and things like that because the thing is just flexing all over the place. The last of them is not so bad, you know? And it's like anything, once you get used to something, you're riding it all the time, you can kind of allow for that. You get used to it, I guess, and you kind of don't notice it anymore. And what we know now about suspension, too, compared to 1983 or whatever, I've had people work on my suspension, which got it way better than it ever could be. And it kind of eliminated a lot of things that would have been problems in 83. They're not anymore, you know. I've got to bet that somebody like Brock Clover wished he would have had cartridge emulators and uh, and those kind of things back in the day. The fact that he was the last guy to win a national championship on that bike, I think, what, 85, I think it was, when uh, when Clover won his last title? Yeah, and that was too, like, if you think about it, when you look back, that bike was pretty stock. And Bailey and them were running the RC500s, which was like hand-built, like super trick, exotica. And, you know, for... Brock to do what he did on a pretty much production bike to be Bailey of all people on that super trick bike. I mean, that's pretty impressive, you know? I've always said, yeah, I would, I would agree. Yeah. He definitely made the 490 legendary for sure. But maybe the fact that he was running production bikes and the OWs, you know? Yeah. That was about the, the era when the production rule came in, I think was 84 when they said, okay, everybody needs to be on the same equipment and level the playing field. And it took a few years before they caught up to that and everybody was factory was making trick stuff again, but that was the the intent of the rule. And Yamaha, I think, said, we're going to stick to the rule and we're going to follow it. And they were the first ones out there on production bikes. Didn't it cost a few riders, uh, maybe like a Ricky Johnson with a blown hub and 
things like that had to happen before they could get that fixed and dialed in. They had the Z spoke thing around that time too. You remember that? I and, did. Uh, yeah. I know a lot of wheels came apart with that deal, especially fronts. Like the last of the 490 still has Z spokes in the rear and it doesn't seem to be a problem there. I say that touch wood, I could go out to ride tomorrow and have a problem. But anyway, <laughs> but on the fronts, it definitely seemed to be an issue for sure. As the owner of a few motorcycles, you had uh, mentioned that you had gone riding last weekend. So when Rory goes out to the garage and heads out to the track that morning, how do you pick which bike to ride? Or is there one horse that you stick with? How's that go? I ride 490s a lot, but my 83, I've kind of parked it a bit because I've broken some stuff on it that you can't get. And I'm kind of limiting my time. I'll just race it now. But to be honest with you, my formula is if I go out and a bike is clean and it's got a filter in it, well, that's what I'm riding today. Oh, okay. I've been really lucky in this whole time that, you know, with not traveling stuff, there's a track probably 20 minutes from me opened up called Andre's MX track and he opens every day. And when I leave the office in the evening, I go ride. And then on weekends I go ride. So I think in the last three weeks, I've been riding maybe 19 days out of the last 21. It's been a lot. That's outstanding. So sometimes it's a case of there's something in the back of my truck. So that's what we're riding today. But uh, you get to a point where, you know, you need to clean the filter on this bike. So you'll grab something that's ready to go. So I always have a project going. So sometimes I'll get to a point where, you know, like this thing is done. I kind of want to ride it down, dial it in. Sometimes it's it. That's the reason too. But basically all I care is that, if it's got two wheels and a set of handlebars, like I'm good to go and preferably a two-stroke. Yeah, you definitely and vintage bikes kind of lean that way anyway in, into the two-stroke world. So you touched on something there, Rory, you mentioned travel. So obviously COVID has changed things for a lot of us and anybody that's working in the industry, trade events are no longer happening and just events in general have been canceled or not even rescheduled a lot of times. I mean, what do you see as a fallout from COVID and power sports, because you're so close to the market and deeply involved. And I know you travel a lot normally. How does that affect you? This year, I've ridden more than I probably have in the last 20 years, just because of not traveling from COVID and the fact that there's a track near me now uh, that I can take advantage of that. But, um, but from talking to dealers and things, like it just seems that everywhere, there's a lot more new blood coming into the industry. There's a lot of people that when the kids were home from school that they bought them a bike, you know, they bought a PW or something that they can ride in the backyard. And now I'm seeing at the track where there's a lot of new older people riding too, like, because they bought a PW and they're kind of like, well, now we can go to this track and we'll ride with the kid. I'll get a bike for myself. And it's been really good for the industry. I don't know if it's uh, a nice thing to say about what's going on, but for the motorcycle industry, it's kind of been the shot in the arm needed for probably 10 years or more, you know? And uh, hopefully that momentum keeps going. Like anytime we can get more people riding, it's it's great. You know, it just makes for a, a better world in the motorcycle world. I always say like, if everybody had a motorcycle, there wouldn't be as much badness in the world. Like I, I know whenever things are going bad for me or whatever, I'm in a bad mood. If I go ride, like I'm pumped for weeks after. So I'm not unique in that situation. I think most people, that's the way they feel when they ride a motorcycle. Couldn't agree more. Sometimes it's the best medicine. And I, I'll 100% agree with your observation. I mean, I've been out to the track. I was out yesterday and I see more new faces than I've ever seen, both on the kids' track. I think I counted 20 on the kids' track and they were all beginning riders. And uh, then you go out on the big track with the adults and you see their dads and moms are out there riding. So it's even if a percentage fall off, which you kind of expect as they get back to 
you know, the sports world that they probably left to go do this. Even if a percentage goes back, a percentage will stay and it'll be good long term for the power sports market in general. And there'll be more bikes and dirt bikes sold and all growth for the industry, which I love to see. Yeah. And I think we like as riders that are already there, we kind of have a responsibility too. like when I see somebody new, I try to say hello to them or talk to them about their bike or whatever, because it is a pretty intimidating thing you know, to be on the outside and you're kind of, well, should we go there? Should we go to this track? And I think sometimes if people see a smiling face or, you know, somebody that they weren't expecting to talk to them, it kind of makes them feel a bit better about going and keeping at it and realizing that people that ride bikes, we're not all hell's angels. Like some of us are just regular people who just have this uh, thing where we like to ride motorbikes, right? Absolutely. And I think you, you hit on something there. You know, we're the old guard and as new people come in, you, you got to welcome them with open arms and kind of show them the way. I've found myself explaining to new riders, you know, some of the track etiquette that uh, that's really important, not just for the existing rider's safety, but for their own. You know, hold your line. Don't dart around the track. You know, enter the track here, leave the track here. Don't do these things. And it's our opportunity to kind of spread the knowledge so that, you know, not only do they learn, but everybody stays safe at the same time. Right. Because that's the worst thing for us. Is like, I don't know, you probably remember it in the 90s, Dave, when Supercross was big, you know, and all of a sudden every local track had like monster triples and stuff. And there was like a mass exodus of, of like guys that were riding bikes because we all had to go to work on Monday, like trying to do a big triple where like you either make it or you don't was not what people wanted to do. You know, it, it did more harm than good. It was it was cool to look at on TV or whatever, but at your local track, it didn't translate, you know. So people have figured out that a lot of tracks are building jumps now where if you want to go big on them, you can. But if you're not comfortable doing it, then you can still do a bit of a jump. You're not losing 10 seconds a lap by not doing it. You know what I mean? So I think the whole thing has evolved to make it where, you know, motocross as a sport is getting to be a lot more friendly for everybody, not just fast guys, you know. Couldn't agree with you more, Rory. Listen, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. We're at the point where we need to wrap up. We're against the clock. But uh, as an ambassador to the sport, we appreciate your time and you give you a few moments too. I know your racing effort when you go from the U.S. over to the U.K. is is not uh, cheap to do. If there's anybody that you want to thank in your efforts there, go ahead and do it now. That's a good point. It is expensive and we're like a co-op without all the people that help us out. We wouldn't be able to do it. So huge thanks to Yamaha US, like Keith McCarty and Nate there. They help us a ton. Wiseco have helped us out a lot. They've done special parts first and things. Throttle Jockey, 100%. Answer Gear, Maxima Oils, Crankworks, Motion Pro, Nick Zombie at Zombie Motors. He's our mechanic for the weekend. He comes out, asks nothing from us, and works so hard over the whole weekend to keep bikes running. Sal Rims, Ork Chains, PM Motorcycles, NGK Spark Plugs, Boys and Reeds, Twinner Filters, Tom Morgan builds our motors for us, EBC Brakes get the bike stopped for us, Renthal Bars and Sprockets, and then, of course, Bridgestone, who I work for, they give us tires, get us hooked up. And then Matt Halpin is a huge deal for us. Like, Matt, we keep the bikes in Ireland and Matt and his wife, Catherine, through my help and motors, their company, get the bikes to England for us every year and store them for us and just basically do everything we need for between the year to get to get us there for the following year. So big thanks to all those people, because without those people, we wouldn't be able to do it. Awesome. And uh, make sure everybody to check out those brands. They're all uh, supporting Rory and they're big names in the industry. So uh, check them out. And Rory, thanks again for coming on the show, man. No, I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate that. We'd like to thank our guest, Rory O'Neill, for being with us today. 
And this week's Pit Pass trivia question answer is, let me read the question one more time. An avid motorcycle enthusiast, he was known to own many motorcycles over his lifetime. What was Elvis Presley's last motorcycle? And the answer is a 1976 Harley-Davidson FLH 1200 electric glide. Now Elvis, he was a car fanatic, as everybody knows. He was also a huge motorcycle fanatic, a lot more than cars, actually. It was really the thing he loved quite a bit. He once bought a truckload of Triumphs just so all of his friends and girlfriends and that and hangers on, I guess, could ride together. So that's how much he loved motorcycles. He would just collect them all. And when people come over to visit, he always had plenty of bikes around for people to ride. He had uh, bikes, trikes. He was big into trikes. Uh, actually, one of his favorite vehicles was a 1975 Supercycle Stallion trike, which was a Volkswagen-powered chopper trike. And if you've ever seen him, it just screams 1970s. Some of the other popular bikes he owned, uh, 1956 Harley-Davidson KH, which was the predecessor to the Sportster. So a real Keystone model, 1957 Harley FLH. And one of his favorite bikes, though, was a Honda CA77 Dream. And the reason he really liked that bike is uh, it was a vehicle he rode in two movies, the movie Roustabout and the movie Viva Las Vegas. So Elvis, just a total uh, bike nut, which is... Probably one of the reasons we all love him, even our uh, producer of the show is such a huge fan of Elvis that uh, she's seen his motorcycles in the museum and just has been a total uh, super fan her entire life. So if you ever get a chance to go to Graceland, make sure you go to the museum and you'll actually get to see some motorcycles amongst all the other stuff. So great trivia question. And uh, we all miss Elvis and we miss his movies and we miss his motorcycles most of all. So upcoming events, we have AMA Motocross at the WW Ranch in Jacksonville, Florida, coming up September 26th. We have MXGP of Lombardia, Montovia, Italy, which is September 26th and 27th. We also have MotoGP in Catalana GP, which is in Barcelona, Spain. That's September 27th. We have Moto America Superbikes at the Brickyard, Indianapolis, Indiana, October 9th through 11. Make sure you check that out. Go to MotoAmerica.com for all the info. We've got World Superbike coming up in France, October 2nd. And lastly, uh, American Flat Track is returning to the Dallas Half Mile in Mesquite, Texas, September 25th and 26th. Thank you again to our guests for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, where you'll get alerts when new episodes are uploaded. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us. You know, we really appreciate it. It lets us know if we're doing the right thing and talking about the things you folks want to hear about. So please check that out. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our all new blog this has been a production of evergreen podcast a special thank you to tommy boy halverson chris bishop producer leah longbreak and audio engineers sean rule hoffman and will pritz i'm dave and we'll see you next week keep the rubber side down Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. 
They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.